Okay. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would speak to us this morning, that you would teach us, but also, Lord, that we would be willing to lay our hearts on the altar before you and say, change me, Jesus. Change me, Jesus. And I also pray, Lord, that you would change us who are your body in this nation. That you would uh, change our course so that you might be glorified, that you would receive all the glory and all the praise and all the authority. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Okay. I'm going to speak about a really unpopular Bible word this morning. Uh, just to follow on from other really unpopular Bible words we've talked about. And uh, I actually talked about this, I guess, about six months ago now. Uh, but I've been uh, seeking the Lord more on it, and he's been telling me I have to say more on it. So here we are, we're saying more on it. And uh, I guess I, I would expect that I'm going to talk about it next week as well. So there's advance warning. So, uh, you know, depending on how this morning goes, I'll see you next week or not. <laughs> so this really unpopular Bible word is humility. Because why is it unpopular? Because our flesh doesn't like Humility. Our flesh wants it to be all about us. And, uh, but humility is it's a basic foundation of the life of a successful believer. Hear that? The basic foundation of the life of a successful believer. And it comes before so much that God has for us. So, we want the Holy Spirit to create in us a heart of humility. And uh, I believe that's more urgent in this generation in church than it's ever been before. Um, you know, when you go visiting other places and you see other, other places and you look at what, what's happening... I think we've lost our anchor point on humility. And the reason for that is that that character of humility is not always the starting point of what we do. And I'll explain what I mean by humility in a minute. But because we have become reliant on our ability to build the kingdom, we have slipped down a road that is dangerous for the power in the kingdom. Because James tells us that God resists the proud and he gives grace to the humble. So what, what does that mean by grace? So it, it, doesn't mean, it encompasses but doesn't mean in this context forgiveness. What grace means in this context is the empowerment to do what God called you to do. It's saying that if you want to do things in your own ability and by your own ideas and by your own efforts, 
you put yourself in a position where actually God is resisting you. That's why building church is so hard these days. That's why we resort to social media and the internet and Facebook and all the rest of it to big ourselves up, to attract people, to follow us, to come to our churches. And, you know, we, we, we advertise, don't we? Like, this is going to be an amazing miracle conference. Well, how do you know? And, and when is it? Because we advertise these things and, and I've spoken at them and nobody ever prays for anybody. It's kind of like, wow, I sold the tickets. We, we've relied on the ways of man to build our churches and to build our ministries and to build our conferences. And yeah, I'm being controversial, but as we know, Cheryl will sort you all out later. She said, Don't, you have to stop saying that, but it's true, isn't it? She's so lovely, isn't she? But here's, here's the thing. We wouldn't have to do any of that if God wasn't resisting us, if he was actually giving his grace. What's grace in that context? Grace in that context is the anointing. You know, you don't have to tell people on Facebook, I was ministering at this church and there was a lovely presence of God. Why are you telling anybody that? You're only telling people because you want them to come to that church. And we, we just got ourselves caught up in all this. And, and, and it's dangerous because it robs the body of the anointing. I mean, we, we, we've got here a visitor uh, who knows John and Laura. We know John and Laura Miller, don't we? He led worship two or three years ago, we used to work in, in the church. And Christina goes to a, a, a fantastic church in London. And you visit it. And here's the thing, that church was birthed in the move of a power, the power of God, the anointing of God, resting on two brothers called the Jeffrey brothers. And, and it's a special place. But it's only special as long as the anointing's there. When it becomes about men, places cease to be special and rely on a special man who has charisma or, uh, you know, has all the right words or can do, a, he's a great communicator or a great manager or a chief exec or, you know, all these things. And we... We've kind of got caught up in that. And, and we got caught up in that when we started asking the world who doesn't know Jesus what church should be like so we could get the world to come. And here's the problem. We were never meant to get the world to come to church. We were meant to be a church that went to the world. And if we went to the world, we wouldn't have to ask the world what it wanted because it would see the difference because we carry the anointing. But as long as we try and build things on our own effort and our own pride, God resists us. And we, we kind of cancel ourselves out of the anointing. So that, that's kind of my warm-up. And I'm telling you this because it's dangerous and it's so easy to fall into without realizing. When the Holy Spirit turned up at one thing a few weeks ago, I was desperate to put something on Facebook. Like well, my, my whole flesh wanted to say, we had a fantastic meeting last night. The Holy Spirit turned up. 
I have not sensed the intensity of the Spirit like that for such a long time, or something along those lines. And, and you want to do that because you want people to come. And I found myself like really questioning my own heart. And, and that's where this, this comes from. Because I don't want to be one who God resists. I want to be one who carries his anointing. And that, that's so important. Because what is birthed of the anointing is eternal. What is based of flesh is temporary and will count for nothing. So I want things that last eternally. That's what this is all about, having things that last eternally. So I've got a question for you. you can, it's a kind of a hands-up question. That means you, you put your hand up if, if, if it's you. Who wants to be chosen by God for something important? Okay, there's one or two people aren't really sure. We're like, perhaps they've got the humility thing already. <laughs> it's a loaded question, isn't it? Because we do all want to be chosen by God because we want to please him. We, we want him to sense our love for him and know our love for him. But we... And, and because of that, we don't want to feel like we just lived a life that didn't really go anywhere in, in, in spiritual terms. And so we get to this word humility. There's a, a, a man, South African guy, I think he was, called Andrew Murray. I'm not sure he was South African, but his ministry was in South Africa. And uh, he, he actually... Uh, lived in the midst of a tremendous revival that took place in South Africa. Um, I guess it's 150 years ago, something like that, when he was around. And he wrote this book. Uh, he wrote lots of books about what it's like to live in revival. And he wrote one called Humility. It was his worst seller. But this is what he said. Humility is simply the sense of entire nothingness which comes when we see how God is truly all in all, and in which we make way for God to be all in all through us. And that's, that's a really kind of deep statement. Let me just give you another word for what he's saying. He's saying the power of the Holy Spirit is available upon you and through you when you walk in dependency on God. And so the question about are you humble becomes what are you dependent on? Are you dependent on God or are you dependent on something else? The humble person is dependent on God. The proud person is dependent on something else, usually themselves. And dependency and humility, they're like two rails of the same train track. And you, 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 as long as you stay on both rails, you're not going to crash. And you might have heard people refer to what that train track's called, this 
humility and dependency train track. In fact, you might have heard Jesus talk about it. He called it the narrow way. You don't want to be on the wide way. You want to be on the narrow way, which is of dependency upon him and humility so that he gets the glory. Because that allows him to anoint you and work through you. And it's the anointing we need. We do not need better managers in the church. We do not need better buildings. We do not need better communicators just for the sake of communication. Because we've got all that compared to previous generations and we're less effective than they were because we lack the anointing. And so we, we can delude ourselves, and I don't have a problem with technology. Well, we had a problem with technology this morning, but generally I don't. I, I like it. I like lights. I, I like screens. I, I like to be able to use it. But in the absence of, an, of the anointing, we will achieve not a lot, and it will be hard work. And so we, we need to be a group of believers who, who seek that, and, and, and we seek that on this narrow path called dependency and humility. I told you it was a Bible word we didn't like. Now, let me just explain. When, when Andrew Murray uses that word nothingness, uh, he's not actually just, to, he's not talking about what you get in some Far Eastern religions or New World, uh, New Age type of things where you just empty yourself. A, a believer, um, how, how can I put it? What he's talking about is a, a lack of awareness of our own glory in the midst of what God is doing for his glory. A lack of awareness of our own glory in the midst of what God is doing for his glory. You see, Christianity, you, you know this, don't you? Christianity just does not teach emptying of yourself. So just don't get involved with that. What Christianity teaches is denial of self so Christ can be glorified. And it's different. We deny self. We deny our flesh in order to walk in the spirit. And it's not, you know, it's not about stopping doing things or just going, oh, well, Jesus will do it. It doesn't matter what I do. It's not about that. It's, it's about doing things in the power of the Holy Spirit, but thinking Jesus has to get all the credit. You see, that, that's what this is about. It's about Jesus' glory. This is what your life's about, because you gave him your life when you became a believer. It's about his glory. Now, there are Bible verses that says we, he, we'll have glory. What, what does that mean? It means that we'll have a reputation in heaven when he gets his glory through us, and we give him his, the glory. And heaven likes that, and they, go, and, and they recognize, apparently, according to Paul, they recognize people like that in heaven, and they, they are regarded with honor and renown in heaven because they didn't seek honor and renown here. They didn't take the glory of Jesus and reflect it on themselves. And, and that apparently, according to Paul, is so rare that it's, it's credited as glory to you in heaven. How cool is that? He, he talks about that in Corinthians, if you, want, if you want to know where it is. 
And what Andrew Murray says, and he, he, he carried on to, from that quote I gave you, he says this, it's, it is our humility that lets God be free to be all in all. So where does, where does that get us? Well, it gets us to this, that there's kind of a danger in me doing this because we we will immediately think of people we've met during our lives. But without that discernment and that recognition, it's just hard to get your head around things, isn't it? So let me let me describe this. Where I've seen people, lovely uh, believers, who begin with a really simple love of Jesus and a desire to be near, near him and to see his glory, to see him do what he does best. And the loving Jesus was enough for them at that time. But somewhere along the way, they lost track of that. And it always begins, my, this is my observation, that losing track always begins at one place. And it's a place that the that people who are on this track deny. But the place is that, that it begins a, with a lack of genuine closeness with Jesus in the secret place. A lack of encounter with Jesus is where it begins. Because... When you encounter Jesus, you transform from glory to glory. Like, you get more and more like him. So it's a lack of genuine encounter with Jesus. And, and often people I've seen that have got off track will say that they're really spiritual people. But what, what we find is that it's, they, they are running on a perspective of themselves that Jesus doesn't have about them. And, and you can tell because... You know, I, I don't. Sometimes, as a pastor, you, you get privileged to read people's journals, or they'll show you something. God said this to me, and and they'll open the journal up to you, and 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 they've got journals just full of God telling them how amazing they are, and they're the most precious person in in the entire universe, and they couldn't possibly need to change anything because it's everybody else that needs to change in order to allow their anointing to blossom. Have you ever met somebody like that? And then, you know, we, we've got others and, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't want to go here, so I'm not going to go there. I was going to get into prophecy, but we're not going to get into prophecy because some people have uh, destroyed their lives on trying to make happen prophecies that were never real and never realistic because they were never going to change to be the person that they needed to be for that prophecy to, to happen. And so we, we've got that. But the result of all this is people start to believe that their abilities are more and more vital to the kingdom. That somehow they are a key that other people aren't. And this is where it gets really dangerous. 
Because when you begin to think you're special, you begin to think you're more and more vital and not replaceable like other people. And then we have a problem. Now, just pause a moment, because if you're anything like me, I ask questions. And so my question that I've just seen in my journal here was, but I thought I was special to God. Yes, you are special to God. All of us are created and born again into the image of God. And we have the Holy Spirit come to live in us and become one with our spirit. That's how you get born again. That's, that's who a believer is. We're not the same as people who are not believers. And all of us are deeply loved by God. You know, all of us, Jesus delights in because we're the joy that was set before him on the cross. So all of that is true. You are special. But when it comes to leadership, when it comes to ministry, when it comes to effectiveness and fruitfulness, when it comes to God's plans, every single one of us is replaceable. We haven't ceased to be special in God's eyes, but we are always replaceable as God works out his plans. And we will be replaced if we think that we are vital to those plans and other people aren't as special as us. You see, God is this amazing chief exec of his church. And he knows what he's doing and he can manage the people who are part of his church to bring about his plans. And you go, well, okay. You've talked quite a long time, Mark. Are you going to give me some scripture on this? Because you've only given me the bit out of James and I knew that bit already. So you're going to give me some scripture on this? Well, I'm going to give you a couple of Bible instances where this happens. And uh, I'm going to start in 1 Samuel 15. You, you might remember this story. By the way, they're not stories, the facts. But we'll use the word story because it's easier. You might remember this story. And it's about a particular event that happened when Saul was king of Israel. And what happened is there was this, this guy who led this group of people called the Amalekites, called Amalek. And he'd laid waste and ambushed Israel. And he'd laid waste to the, the land. He'd basically burned and done all the things that you know, bad people do. And Saul, uh, God goes to Saul and he tells him through Samuel that, Sa that Saul is to go and take back what has been taken and he is to completely eradicate the Amalekites and take nothing that was theirs. So he isn't to bring anything back, you know, like normally when you conquer, you, you, you nick all the Chinese stuff, don't you? 
So he hasn't to do any of that, and he's not to get the cattle and all those sort of things. So it's a specific instruction from God. And what, what happens is that Saul, uh, they go, they conquer the Amalekites, and Saul and, and the people keep some of the stuff back. They keep all like the best goats and the best cows and all that sort of stuff, and they keep it back, and they set up an altar, and they're going to sacrifice this stuff that they've taken from the Amalekites to God. So that's, that's their intention. Now, if you looked at that in isolation, you'd say, well, that's a really cool thing, isn't it? We're giving glory to God, and we're going to make sacrifices to him to thank him for this amazing victory he's done. What's wrong with that? It's not what God told you to do. And, and the problem here is that Saul... His heart was driven by pride and not humility. Saul is just this amazing example of we have of what it is to be resisted by God. God anointed him to lead the people, to be king over the people, and he ends up being resisted by God. And so we, we get this story in 1 Samuel 15, and I'll start at verse 17. So Samuel said, when you were little in your own eyes, were you not head of the tribes of Israel? Did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? So when he was humble, little in his own eyes, and God was big in his eyes, God anointed him to lead the people of Israel. Now the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they're consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? How did you move from being humble to being full of pride? Why didn't you obey the voice of God? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? And, and that's, that's the question, isn't it? How did you get off track? How did you get off track and lose the anointing? And the answer comes in the next verse. Saul said to Samuel, but I have obeyed the voice of the Lord and gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me and brought back Agag, king of Amalek, I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. So his first response is, I did what God told me to do. What's that? That's the classic clouding of the issue by the person who is not humble. Try and cloud the issue. Try and make it all muddy. Try and get some people on your side. Try and get some sympathy. And if you can't get sympathy and you can't get people on your side, play the victim. And that's what he's doing. So he does that. And then verse 21. And Saul said to Samuel, but I have obeyed the voice of the Lord and gone on the mission of... Sorry, that's verse 20. Uh... I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took the plunder, sheep and oxen, the best of the things which should have been utterly destroyed to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. 
So when they, I did do what I was told to do, excuse, and I played the victim doesn't work, let's blame everybody else for why my life didn't work. Church absent of anointing, let's blame the people. Because if they'd work harder and pursue my vision harder, they'd do a lot better. But they just don't do it. Or, well, I could have had this amazing ministry, but this person got in my way. It's everyone else's fault. Why? Because pride can never face its own issues. Pride just doesn't face its own issues. Let's go on to verse 24. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. Because basically Samuel said, uh, all these sacrifices and all this sort of stuff, it means nothing in the face that you've rebelled because that's actually the same as witchcraft. It's on, on God's bad scale alongside witchcraft is rebellion. You didn't do what God asked you to do. You denied that you hadn't done it. And then you blamed other people and said it was all their fault and they made you do it. And they got in your way. And you would have obeyed God if it wasn't for all these others. And, and so Sam, Samuel says, that's like witchcraft. Because you're manipulating people to get what you want and build yourself and your own fame and your own ministry and your own platform, and your own standing, and your own finances. And so he says, verse 24 and 25, Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord. So he's realized now, his excuses aren't washing, because he's talking to a prophet who has got the word from God, that that's just utter rubbish. Saul said to Samuel, Sin, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord on your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. So here's the point. Saul says, I've sinned, but the reason I sinned is because I feared the people more than I feared the Lord. Finally, he's got his head around what the problem is. When you try to build things by the approval of people and the adulation of people, you fall by the approval of people and the adulation of people. Because that's all you have. And so Saul was pursuing the adulation of people. Saul had this enormous problem that he wanted to gather crowds who would say, isn't Saul wonderful? Wow, what amazing guy. I've got to get to his next meeting. And he had this problem with that. And then verse 27, And Samuel turned around to go away. Saul seized the edge of his robe and it tore. So Samuel said to him, The Lord today has torn the kingdom of Israel from you and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. 
how do you get to be better than the king of Israel? Because that sort of thing means nothing to God because he can give it and he can take it away because we're replaceable. Why is he better? Because he's humble. And in verse 30, then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now. Please before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul and Saul worshiped the Lord. What's that about? It's about Saul not losing face in front of the people of Israel. Even when he was repenting, his purpose was not to lose face. And, and God in his mercy, or Samuel in his mercy, actually went back and they did the sacrifices. What's so big about Saul doing sacrifices? Well, firstly, it was disobedience. Secondly, they kept the stuff back. But thirdly, Saul wasn't a priest. He was a king. Under the law, he wasn't allowed to do sacrifices. That's why this is kind of a biggie on God's scale of rebellion. Because, and you go like, you see, I read all that, and I'm thinking, well, that really seems harsh, doesn't it? Basically, they've gone, they've conquered these people, taken some stuff back, kind of excused themselves for taking all the good stuff by saying, okay, we'll give a sacrifice to God because, you know, that, that'll make God happy as well and we'll be able to say we're really good spiritual people. And, and then he's done that and his problem is he's not a priest, he's a king. Now, that computes is really, in my head, that computes, computes is really harsh on the basis of, of, of what God's doing. Take away all those lessons I've just talked about. It's, it's kind of harsh, isn't it? How, how many chances do we need? You see, it is harsh if that's the first time he's done it because he hasn't had time to learn. But two chapters earlier... He does exactly the same thing. So in 1 Samuel 13, what happens uh, is that, well, I'll read it to you. 1 Samuel 13, verse 7. Basically, what Samuel has told him to do is to wait seven days and Samuel is going to come and conduct the sacrifices. And it gets to right at the end of the seven days and the crowd is scattering. Saul is losing face. His, his ministry is falling apart. The crowds are leaving him. They're going somewhere else. And so he says, no, no, come back. I, I'll keep you happy. I'll please you. Let's just change everything. Let's, let's do what you like. And what I'll do is I'll do the sacrifices. And so he starts to sacrifice. And Samuel turns up, just like he said he would, and said, why did you not wait? Here's what Saul said in his answer. Samuel said, what have you done? Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me, from me, not from God, and that you did not come within the time appointed, and the Philistines were gathering, I said, the Philistines will now come down on me at Gilgal 
and I've not made an offering to the Lord. Therefore, I felt compelled and offered a burnt offering. In other words, what he's saying is, I did this because I was losing the attention of the people and I got my eyes on the enemy and off God. And Samuel said to Saul, you've done foolishly. You've not kept the commandment of the Lord your God. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. God intended to give Saul a kingly anointing so that right down the generations, he would have been the one. And then, but now your kingdom will not continue. The Lord has sought for himself, what? A man after his own heart. And the Lord will make him commander of his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And, and Saul, can, he, he repents. And then you find him two chapters later in that first story I told you about. He does the same thing. It isn't that God isn't patient with us. In fact, he's more patient with us than he was with Saul. Why? Because the covenant's different. God's the same, but the covenant's different. So he's dealing with Saul on the basis of the old covenant. But even there, he's, he's patient, he's merciful, he, but he's looking for somebody that's got his own heart. And Saul demonstrates that the thing that has his heart is the people and the adulation of the people and the fame and the platform and the title and all the rest of it. And so God ultimately replaces him. Now, how does... Here's a question for you. How does what Saul did compare to murder? Better or worse? What do we think? Saul does a sacrifice at the wrong time and blames other people. Somebody else does murder, which is the worst sin? Well, sin is sin, yeah, we can do that. But if I was judging, you get longer in prison for murder, don't you, than not in being instructions. David was a murderer, the one who is after God's own heart. And yet he remained king and his seed for generations and eternity. How is that fair? Because David turned round and said, I'm not going to claim to be a victim. I'm not going to blame the other people. Against you only have I sinned, God. Creating me a clean heart. And God does it. Why? Because David was humble. And he was after God's own heart. And yeah, he did something terrible. And Saul did something bad, but not really terrible. 
This is how seriously God takes this issue of pride and humility. How dependent are you on God? How many chances do we need to learn to get rid of all this pride stuff out of the church and all this self-building and, and drawing people to ourselves and competing for people? How many chances do we need? Well, I've got grace. But you ain't got anointing. You haven't got the presence of God with you. There's something God badly wrong in your secret place. I did a little experiment. I can't remember where I told you this because I've been talking that many places recently. Um, and I'm going, I'm going to finish at this point. But you know, when you are with Jesus and you know Jesus, you will talk about Jesus. That's what the Holy Spirit said to me. And then he said to me something really um, think odd. He'd never done this before. He told me to pick up my phone in my secret place. Otherwise, the man cave. And I thought, we don't do that. He said, no, pick your phone up. So I picked it up. And he said, right, I want you to look at Facebook. So I'll just tell you the conversation. These are really strong impressions that I had in my heart. And he said, I want you to look at Facebook. And he said, how many friends have you got on Facebook? So I told him. And he said, how many of those are Christians? Mm, almost all of them. And he said, right, I want you to look down Facebook. And I want you to see how many times somebody talks about me. Jesus. Because the Holy Spirit is... He, he will always point to Jesus because he's got the humility thing. He'll always glorify Jesus. So how many times do people talk about Jesus? So bearing in mind, I have 4,257 Facebook friends as of this morning, most of whom are Christians, and I did this for two and a half hours. So I'm not just like the popular ones. These are people I've not clicked like on for the last 20 years. You know, I'm, get, I'm getting that far down my page. How many times do you think I encountered somebody talking about Jesus? Four, 4,257 people, nearly all of whom are Christians, two and a half hours scrolling through Facebook. Facebook. How many times did somebody talk about Jesus? One. And that just shocked me to the core. Shocking, isn't it? That we, we don't talk about the one we claim to love. One.
you remember when, in that story, when Saul, uh, Samuel turns away from Saul and Saul tries to grab Samuel and ends up tearing his um, garment? You know, that's the thing about pride. It tries to take hold of and obtain for itself by its own strength. That which God has promised, he will give freely. It tries to do it with its own strength. That which God would freely give. Why? Because there's a lack of humility. Somewhere inside, there's still that wiring that says, I've got to get some of the glory here. It's got to be about me. It's got to be about my ministry, my standing, my platform, my status, my reputation, my adulation. Because lack of humility fears people not following and giving attention. And when it's found out, lack of humility plays the victim. And David could have played the victim. But he owned up to what was solely him. And he received God's grace. So that God would have all the glory. You see, this is what humility says. If it's not God, I don't want it. And that's what I say this morning for me. If it's not God, I don't want it. And if it's not done God's way and God gives it, I don't want it. Because sometimes it can be God, but we try and get it not God's way. And I don't want it that way either. See, it really is all about Christ being all in all. In us, through us, upon us, around us. We are a minority, a small minority in this land, and we cannot afford to be a powerless minority as we now are. We need to just have zero tolerance for pride and platform building and gathering th people to ourselves. And we need to talk about Jesus. We need to talk about the one we love. Because it's all about him. Can I have the worship team back? Let's stand.
Father, I thank you for your son who died for me. I thank you for your Holy Spirit who came to glorify Jesus on earth, who came to anoint the body of Christ on earth. And Father, I'm sorry when I've made it things about me when it should have only been about your son. If it's not Jesus, I don't want it. And if it's not your way, I don't want it. Creating me that heart of humility. Let me lay aside that fear of not getting the attention, not getting the focus. It not been about me. And let it all be about you. Amen.